Hello, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you are listening to Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hi, and welcome to this, the fifth episode of the Polit podcast, the podcast for political posits. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and Happy New Year. It's finally 2021, and we can all put 2020 behind us. <laughs> uh, I apologise for not having uh, put, done a podcast episode or adding to the blog in a few weeks. This is, of course, due to Christmas. And the fact that I got a number of books, which I can't wait to sort of finally get round to reading, but that does mean I've been reading more than I've been writing. So hence why a few notes to put up on the blog. But we're back to normal now. Um, forgive me for that sort of hiatus, but as I say, we're back now. Uh, before I begin this week's episode, please go to the blog. There should be a link, as always, in the description to the left, to the right, or below, in the description box. And as I say, please go to the blog, like, share, subscribe. It would mean the world to me. And, you know, it allows me to get more listeners, more readers, um, which would be great. <laughs> Thank you ever so much. So today what we're going to look at is on macro securitization, the pandemic and the United Nations. This episode is going to be a little bit more academic, returning to my roots, which are international relations theory. But don't let that put you off. We're going to try and discuss the pandemic in a different frame uh, to one that you've probably normally heard on the radio or read about in the papers or seen on the news. Um, and as I said, we're going to use a little bit of international relations theory and security theory to do that. Okay, so let's begin. International security has become part and parcel of the discourse within international relations. Since the end of the First World War, notions such as collective security, security maximization, or security dilemma have become commonplace in the nomenclature of international politics, especially as a result of the ideological expansionism, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the emergence of civil war as the predominant mode of conflict, global terrorism, and so on. Nonetheless, this notion of security is steeped in a certain statism that narrows the meaning of security to safeguarding oneself from the dangers of another state, nation, or people. So, as I say, statism kind of means where uh, the state becomes the central unit of international relations thinking, as opposed to individuals or international organisations. And there is a little bit of a bias there when we talk about things in purely statist terms, as, of course, governments and states make decisions, but it's people that make those decisions. So there might be a little bit of, uh, um, as I say, bias towards that. That's statism. Invariably, if we think of security in only this manner, in a statist way, i.e. as security from other humans, human groupings, or human-based agents, the very notion of security is tapered to exclude as much as it includes. Also, as always, uh, if you want citations and references and more content, they are, of course, on the blog. Although perhaps problematic in its own right, a more effective conceptualization of security recognises that the very process of securitizing oneself from another entity is a process of both frontier and norms formulation. Let's unpack that a little bit. 
In order to securitize, one must locate and distinguish oneself from the threat in linguistic terms, through language, so to name it as a threat. In this manner, the Copenhagen School of Security Studies and International Relations Theory provide a consistent account of security as a mutually constructive phenomenon with norms, values and language, which are all formed in the in-betweenness of peoples. As I say, in this, the Copenhagen School of Security Studies and IR Theory, if I say IR, that means international relations, um, what they do is they try to understand how security arises through norms creation and through sort of uh, linguistic habits or the way that, you know, the public are addressed or the language that's used to discuss a particular threat or phenomenon. In this way, it's somewhat similar to the constructivist school of international relations, but it has differences with the constructivist school of international relations. Anyway, going back to the point, securitization in the framework of the Copenhagen School therefore becomes more than security from other humans, human groupings or human-based agents, but rather, and I quote, constituted by the intersubjective establishment of an external threat with a saliency sufficient to have substantial political effects. Quickly, before I continue, let's just break that down. So you have subjectivity, which is like when someone says something is subjective. That relates to sort of one's individual subject, one's consciousness, one's identity, and a sort of, you know, one as I, which differentiates oneself from every other being, every other person. And then you have objectivity, which is kind of like... Um, uh, talking about objects in themselves, or talking about objects as objects. So, for example, if I were to ask you what the microphone is on that I'm talking into right now, we would say a table. If you were to talk about the relationship between the microphone and the table in a scientific manner, that would be objective, right? Or at least there would be a claim to objectivity, because it would be the same if I wasn't here. Right. It, 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 there are things happening in the world, like if a tree falls in the middle of a woods, do you hear it? It doesn't matter. An objectivist would say, yes, it falls down, whether or not we're here to grasp it. That's what a realist would say. Intersubjectivity is sort of how, um, like how things form between people. So, for example... If I understand, I don't know, stealing to be bad, there's nothing sort of like objectively written in the fabric of existence that stealing is bad. That's an interpretation that's formed across time through different subjective positions. A very shallow example of this is like asking the question, who is the best band of all time? Uh, I remember reading a, a, a survey of this once, and the answer was like 20% of people said the Beatles. So that 20% all have their subjective view, and their subjective view happens to be forged between them. Okay, so this conceptualization of security as constituted by the intersubjective establishment of an existential threat with the sort of substantial, with the possibility of substantial political effects. Um, allows us an inclusive and phenomenal grasp of securitization that centers its focus on intersubjectively formulated existential threats within socio-political or with socio-political consequences be this human through ideological contestation for example or terrorism or nuclear proliferation 
environmental threat, such as climate, the climate emergency, or even epidemiological threat, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic is. As the year of COVID-19 comes to a close, or has come to a close, many will be reflecting on the odd character of the past 12 months as a result of the pandemic. For those who may question the status of COVID-19 as a security concern in the first instance, according to the COVID-19 dashboard by Johns Hopkins University, the cumulative total of global the cumulative total number of global deaths from the virus to date, this is on the 31st of December 2020, is 1,806,478. So 1.8 million. How does this relate to other pressing security matters, at least as far as the number of deaths is concerned? Let's consider deaths from terrorism as a comparative measure, for example. With its definitional emphasis on terrorism as violent or threatening action undertaken by non-state agents, between 2000 and 2017, the Global Terrorism Database recorded 271,464 deaths globally as a result of terrorist activity. Let's just take that in. This means that since the outbreak of COVID-19 in late 2019, the virus has killed over six times the number that terrorist attacks did in the 17 years between 2000 and 2017 globally. Six times. One of the biggest disparities, however, is in the securitization of terrorism experienced experience since the beginning of the global war on terror and that of COVID-19. When a security concern is acknowledged by a number of states as being a collective threat, one that a number of sovereign agents have internally and externally intersubjectively constructed as a common existential threat, it becomes what the Copenhagen school thinkers Barry Bazan and Ole Weaver have coined as a macro securitization. So in their own words, to quote, this is the identification of an existential threat to a valued referent object and the call for exceptional measures. Differing to other securitizations in that they are on a larger scale than mainstream collectivities in the middle as a level of analysis. So we're talking about states with the middle um, and seek to package together securitizations from that level into a higher and larger order. Thus, when a security threat is held in common by states, an order based upon security emerges. The global war on terror is a really good illustration of this. In the case of a common threat that is state-centric, what Buzan and Waver explicate is the notion of security constellations. This is where threat becomes mirrored and mutually constructive with the referent object of securitization. All big words, but stick with me. A good example of this is naturally the Cold War. Here, the United States, alongside its allies and institutions of collective security, so NATO, and the Soviet Union, with its allies and institutions of collective security, the Warsaw Pact, constructed one another as their primary existential security concern, magnetizing other sovereign states within their sphere of influence into this web of threat to form an ordered structure grounded on security. 
i.e. a constellation. So these constellations of macro-securitization rely primarily on certain notions of all-encompassing universalisms. This is a big term, but what I mean by this, or what they mean by this, is a, a, a sort of uh, a re reference to a plane that is above sort of small regular action. Uh, a universalism being something which affects all humankind, or, you know, the universal. Bazan and Waver lay out four categories of universalisms that underpin macro-securitization. So we have inclusive, exclusive, existing order, and finally, physical threat. I don't want to go through all four in depth, but for the purpose of understanding, inclusive universalisms include ideological or religious beliefs that wish to optimize the human condition and are applicable to all mankind. So, for example, uh, liberalism in the Cold War is a formulation of inclusive universalism because it talks about the way that human or humanity or the human condition should be. It's a very normative sort of level. Um, Exclusive uni universalisms, the second kind, are ideological beliefs that claim superior rights and status for a single group over humankind. National socialism is a really good example of this, Nazism, uh, where a group claims like their ideology is total and it places themselves above all else. That becomes an exclusive universalism. Um, existing or thirdly, existing order universalisms concern threats to the institutions of international order as a whole, which can overlap with inclusive universalisms, but come as a result of common state interests. For example, like the rise of transnational groups that undermine sovereignty. All sovereign states are sovereign and wish to protect and sort of safeguard their sovereignty, and transnational groups like terrorist organizations, so for example, like Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab or ISIS or the IRA, threaten to undermine that. And so all states agree commonly that to protect the existing order, this threat must be dealt with. And lastly, what they call physical threat universalisms, which in Bazan and Waver's own terms refer to, quote, Claims about dangers that threaten humankind on a planetary scale, such as the climate crisis, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, or diseases, they affect the physical fate of humanity as a whole, and as such are a universalism that can become the foundation of a macro-securitization. The fourth category, with its connection to securitization against disease, as is a referring object, brings us neatly back to COVID-19. Acknowledging that the virus has killed in one year alone six times the number that global terrorism did in 17, at the height of the global war on terror, has the language of macro-securitization at the global level been effective, prudent, or concentrated enough to respond to the global physical threat on the same global level? Simply put, my claim is that it has not. One way we can evaluate this question is the extent to which the language utilised in the resolutions of the United Nations overtly discusses COVID-19 in a frame of macro-securitisation, a common intersubjectively constructive securitisation between all states, or not. 
and sort of look at that in relation to past speech acts and linguistics. Okay, so let's take an example. In Resolution 1368 by the Security Council in 2001, uh, this was adopted by the UN Security Council on the 12th of September 2001, there was naturally, because of the time, a clear referent object of threat determined by all members of the Security Council. This is, you know, the day after 9-11, and it regarded such acts like an act of international terrorism as a threat to peace and security. That's a quote, by the way. This is a clear speech act of macro-securitization. In the utterance of this recognition, the Security Council referred to the threat of international terrorism as a threat to global security, an utterance of intersubjective commonality that changed the condition of the of the phenomenon from just localized security concerns of uh, you know, in the United States or um, uh, Iraq or of uh, Britain or Spain, uh, but all of them together. Um, as, one, as, a, as a threat that was common to all. And that's a macro-securitization, right? Have we seen the same for COVID-19? If we look at the resolutions passed by both the General Assembly and the Security Council in 2020, there is evidence to claim this affirmatively. In Resolution 270 by the General Assembly, passed on the 3rd of April 2020, the Assembly recognised, quote, the unprecedented effects of the pandemic, including the severe disruption to societies and economies, as well as to global travel and commerce and the devastating impact on the livelihoods of people, whilst equally emphasising, quote, optimism that the unprecedented crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic can be mitigated and successfully reversed through leadership and sustained global cooperation and solidarity. By the time of the passing of Resolution 306 on the 15th of September, the language utilised by the General Assembly became more overtly macro-securitisational, expressing that the task of the UN was to, quote, work for peace and focus on the world's common battle to defeat COVID-19, end quote. In the use of the term battle, we saw the first use of military language in describing the necessities of securitization against the virus. Perhaps acknowledging the existential threat COVID-19 poses commonly to all. However, these are the utterances of the existential. Sorry, these are the utterances of the of the General Assembly. Where has the Security Council stood, being the central body of global security recognition and the primary plane on which security constellations become an observable phenomenon? Okay, so the first thing is that there has only been one Security Council resolution concerned exclusively with COVID nineteen. Um, and that's um, Resolution 2532, which was put to the Council by France and Tunisia and passed on July the 1st, 2020. OK, so that's a while ago now. They haven't had a session devoted to it since. The Council recognised, quote, that the conditions of violence and instability in conflict situations can exacerbate the pandemic and that inversely the pandemic can exacerbate the adverse humanitarian impact of conflict situations, whilst equally clearly laying out the stakes 
of a weak internationalist response to the crisis by recognising that the peace-building and development gains made by countries in transition and post-conflict countries could be reversed in light of the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. I know this is a lot of quotes, but stay with me. Finally, in this resolution, there was a coherent affirmation of the security threat that COVID-19 poses in the consideration, quote, that the unprecedented extent of the COVID-19 pandemic is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security. Okay? So, there is a affirmation of the likelihood in July that COVID-19 might endanger the maintenance of international peace and security. Emphasis on the word likelihood. In the discussion that accompanied this resolution, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary-General of the UN, laid out how vulnerable, developing and post-conflict states face the reversal of security in the face of COVID-19. He gave an example um, such as the Darfur region of Sudan, where COVID-19 has exacerbated efforts to forward and build a sustainable peace agreement, fanning the conflict despite the call for a global ceasefire, and equally he spoke about how the effects of the pandemic may aid terrorist organisations. What uh, Guterres actually talks about here, this is rather fascinating, is how the response, which hasn't necessarily been as quick or as effective as uh, certain states would have liked or certain organisations would have liked, and has led to 1.8 million deaths, could that be utilised by terrorist groups with the release of a biological or chemical weapon? Um, would that be the way to... Would that what Guterres was saying was, uh, could that be a signal that this may be how terrorist attacks evolve in the future, considering the the pandemonium the pandemic has caused? Additionally, we can observe that the work of the UN has done. We can observe what the work the UN has done in its humanitarian aid to ease the effects of the pandemic within those areas susceptible to security backsliding, and how it has done this without the collective funding it requires to achieve its aims of de-escalating such backsliding. Nonetheless, this is not as strong a securitization as observed in the past. This is my point. The resolution here is lacking resoluteness affirming only a likelihood of concern, despite that by this point in July 2020, there were already some half a million deaths worldwide, almost double that due to terrorism between 2000 and 2017, and yet the linguistic reference, or the linguistic references in the resolutions, were not there as they were with other security threats that were macro-securitized. This was yet to be macro-securitized in the proper same way. The optimism that is expressed by the General Assembly that the UN can successfully act to mitigate the existential threat of the pandemic at the global level reveals two premises as we enter 2021, and the sheer number of dead and displacement and the effects on security. Either A, that the international effort has been weak and unsuccessful, or that B, there has yet to be a common response at the global level. In either case, we can see that despite the effort of the UN in its formal documental linguistics and humanitarian aid that I've just discussed, 
the Security Council and the General Assembly have yet to award COVID-19 its proper status as a macro-security threat, which, as Bazan and Waver in 2009 claim, mobilise a greater effort in the name of global security, in the same way that occurred during the Cold War, or as with the global war on terror. Indeed, what happens in all of these resolutions by the General Assembly and the Security Council is that the foremost concern is that its own targets towards the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development are hampered, as opposed to sort of wanting to address the immediate human cost and loss of life from the pandemic itself. This agenda is of the uttermost concern with its 17 goals, with its 17 goals, sorry, um, and those goals include things like ending hunger and poverty, for instance, which are really noble causes that the UN should try to str- try to strive to achieve as the basis of its remit in the Charter. However, its immediate response to successfully mitigating the COVID-19 crisis required more than just a recognition of the likelihood that international security would be endangered. Even as late as the 21st of December was it's like a week and a half ago now resolution uh, 2558 on peace building and sustaining peace devoted a single paragraph a single paragraph to covid-19 in which the security council stressed the full implementation of its earlier july resolution 2532 and only emphasized the effect that covid-19 would have on the 2030 agenda for sustainable development This is not success, and the lack of coordination towards an international response has only served to exacerbate the requirement for greater humanitarian action. So as 2020 comes to an end, what we can see is that the number of deaths related to COVID-19 in each of the member states of the UN Security Council Uh, this figure is taken from the 27th of December, came to 627,207 deaths. In the states that sit on the UN Security Council alone, and rising, an approach from the United Nations Security Council that is rooted in a common recognition of COVID-19 as the existential security threat it is, as the global war on terror or the Cold War was, in the linguistic frame of macro-securitization, may in turn provide the construction of a common response that so often flows from the common recognition of a security threat that endangers all. It is not enough to simply recognize a common security threat alone. To succeed against it is to provide a common response. And this can only be achieved through the intersubjective process of macro-securitization. Until then, sadly, 2021 will present the same kind of response to COVID-19 as in 2020. For more content, please take a look at the blog. Please subscribe, like, share, would mean the world to me. And as I say, go find some more content on the blog where there are citations and references and so on. Thank you very much for listening.